Hello and welcome to the Next Gen Materials podcast. Today we are joined by Brandon Abernathy and Zach Moscato, representatives from the company Plastic Ingenuity. For this episode, we'll get an introduction of what next gen innovation of the current plastic industry looks like. Plastic Ingenuity is a plastics manufacturer based in Cross Plains, Wisconsin. As one of the largest thermoformers in the nation, Plastic Ingenuity partners with high-profile companies in the food, healthcare, and consumer goods industries such as Starbucks, Dole, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Samsung, and Energizer, to name a few. Brandon is a materials engineer, and Zach is a corporate sustainability champion of Plastic Ingenuity. I'm so excited to hear what traditional plastic production companies are doing to increase sustainability for plastic products. Thank you so much for joining us, Brandon and Zach. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Happy to be here very much. Thanks, Lauren. So I I wanted to to give a little backstory as to how I ended Mm -hmm. up bringing on Brandon and Zach to this podcast. So I I really wanted to do a episode on plastic innovation, or at least set up the platform for further conversations about next-gen plastic. And as I was looking through my LinkedIn, I saw all these videos popping up that Brandon had been posting. It's a video channel on YouTube called Good Information. And it's something that Brandon and Zach started from their company where they make little two to three minute videos on various topics within plastic, like circularity or recycling and whatnot. And I started watching them and they were very informational. And I thought you guys would be perfect guests to have on here to talk about plastic innovation because I love your enthusiasm. Also for the listeners, fun fact, Brandon and I actually already know each other from high school. Yeah. Yeah, And (laughs) Brandon and I up until recently hadn't talked in maybe like 10 years or so. And so at least 10 years. Yeah. At least 10 years. And So I thought it would be perfect to reach out and ask him, hey, if you want to do one of these podcast episodes about plastic innovation, since you're so passionate about it. (laughs) Yeah. And I I actually saw the performer in you in these videos, the good (laughs) information videos. So Brandon and I used to be in show choir together, as well as drama club, as well as student senate. <laughs> so All of the things, all yeah. of the classes, all of the fun things. <laughs> yeah, we were just a super involved students. And I could totally see like the, the facials, all that performing energy coming out in the good information video that we learned in show choir. <laughs> Absolutely. All of the transferable skills. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So yeah, I really enjoyed those videos myself. And I'm so happy to have you guys on here. I wanted to first ask more about Brandon and your transition from show choir boy to materials engineer. Well, it is definitely a journey. And it started off, you know, early on in high school, even just being so passionate about science and about math. And as you know, we were, you know, in all of those AP classes together and doing it. And really kind of, I didn't know that I was destined for a a technical, I guess, journey throughout, you know, my college years and whatnot. I loved performing in school. I could have gone any direction. However, I knew I loved chemistry and I knew that I loved the idea that science can change the world. And so when I got the opportunity to go down to Georgia Tech in Atlanta, and really kind of first off, just get out of Cincinnati and also just kind of get out of my comfort zone being an only child. I jumped at it. And 
that was really the transition. That's what happened for me. I got the chance to kind of go down to Atlanta and really start my life over and begin a whole new journey for myself professionally and personally. And uh, that's really where I got, I sunk my teeth into the chemical engineering program there. It, it sunk its teeth right back into me because it's really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. However, I, what I loved about what I was learning was I could take a skill set of how to learn anything because that's what Georgia Tech teaches you to do. And what I loved and what I knew I needed to do was make a difference in all of the heartache that I was going through with this technical degree. I had to rework something bigger than just me getting an engineering degree on paper that says I'm qualified to do X, Y, and Z. I needed that impact to go beyond the classroom, so to speak. So that's really where I got the opportunity to first off, you know, find a job because that's what I needed to do. And I started a job with a company named Poly One, and that's actually where I met Zach. So Zach and I go back, back from 2015, 2016. So it's early on even that I met and I knew who he was, but we didn't work together a ton directly. And then Zach moved on at that time, the plastic ingenuity, and I didn't know that, but I stayed back at Poly One. It became a different company called Spartech, and uh, innovation in materials was all that they were about. And so that's that's kind of been the underlying statement, I guess, amongst all of the disciplines that I've been a part of, whether it was at Georgia Tech being an innovator, you know, going into Poly One, who's a chemical specialty additive innovator, Spartech, who's a sheet and extrusion innovator, and now I'm with Plastic Ingenuity, a plastic thermoforming innovator. So I just knew it was where I needed to be, and that's kind of how it happened. Innovating on stage back in high school, learning how to perform (laughs) all the way through to now. Thank you so much for sharing. And Zach, I feel bad. I don't want you to feel left out. I also want to hear about what you did in high school. (laughs) I I want to hear about this too. You know, nothing as exciting as show choir. I, I definitely can't sing, and I'm a terrible dancer. Just ask my wife. So no show choir. <laughs> I was kind of a, a strange blend between a nerd and a, a jock. I, I played sports and also obviously was really into school and, and some of the those types of clubs. So, yeah, I didn't really have a, a set clique or identity, but I love hanging out with a lot of just different people. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you got your degree from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in mechanical engineering. And then so you've worked in various plastic packaging positions as an engineer before transitioning to this sales role and then transition to a sustainability champion. Can you talk through all these transitions a little bit? Yeah, it has been quite the journey. And I'd like to say I always had this end destination in mind, but that's really not true. I've, I've always tried to follow my, my intuition and instincts and follow my passion. So yeah, I started out um, going to school at, at U of I for a mechanical engineering degree. And like Brandon, I just, I liked creating things. I liked tinkering. I liked making things better and uh, seeing the impact that that could have. And, and I always wanted to go to U of I. So they have an outstanding engineering program there. It was something I enjoyed. So it was this no-brainer. But that's where I really, truly tested, I would say, from the first time at an academic standpoint and frankly failed. So that perseverance, that, that built resiliency as I made my way through the program and eventually graduated, got my degree, got into the real world. And that attitude of not giving up really has helped me to this day. My first job was actually designing faucets and valves for a company in Chicago. And it was fun, but I would say there were some things that I wanted to look at a little bit differently. And that's when a family friend called from a company called Berry Plastics. 
and I got a tour of their injection molding facility and was just absolutely blown away by the technology that goes into making these products that we frankly take for granted. So I, uh, I went there a couple years out of school. That's where I really sunk my teeth into the plastics industry for the first time. And I, I worked as a project manager, relying heavily on my engineering skills, but also getting exposed to um, the customer relations side and, and learning more about these huge you know, Fortune 50 companies and, and what they do on a daily basis, and how they operate, how they're impacting the world. So from there, I, you know, I worked there for six, seven years. I, I moved on to a company called Spartech, which eventually became Poly One, which eventually became Spartech again. And that's, that's where Brandon and I had, had our, our short little crossover there. I remember I was teaching a class on thermal farming and he was one of like 30 people in there and he asked really good questions and the guy kind of stuck out. But yeah, I, I would say the number, one of the number one things I took away from, from that experience was just getting deep into the weeds of material science and kind of what's under the hood of the plastic articles that we create. So from there, you know, at that point, I'd been in engineering roles and engineering management roles for really the first 15 years of my career. I decided, look, I, I love interacting with customers. It's one of the most enjoyable parts of my, of, of my, of my job. So I, I went into a, a commercial role, starting with Plastic Ingenuity about five years ago, and it was honestly the best decision I've made in my career so far. Not only did I get to meet Brendan and work with Brendan, but um, it, it's been fun being exposed to this whole new world of building out a sustainability organization. And our leadership team was looking for folks to lead that. And, and I've been involved with sustainability through my customer interactions. It's such an important topic, and it's just grown exponentially over the last five years. That was something that I wanted to take more of a leadership role in. And eventually this past year, transitioned full-time into leading our sustainability organization. I would love if you could share kind of what your day looks like as sustainability champion of a plastic innovation company. What I love about the role is that there's a wide variety of, of what I do. I mean, there, there are days where I'm literally just reading articles and reading research and trying to up my knowledge on a specific topic or maybe a new study came out and I wanted to dive deep into that. So there's that learning component. Then there's being a, just a steward and you know, providing guidance to our customers. And our customers, you named a few at the beginning, are, are some of the, you know, the, the most impactful consumer products and OEM manufacturers in the world today helping them meet their sustainability goals and providing them with solutions and advice. That's another big portion, as well as just providing education and, and being a go-to subject matter expert for our team. Our team, you know, we have, I think, over 700 people now at Plastic Ingenuity, and everyone wants to know that, hey, you know, we work for a plastics company. How are we impacting the world in a positive way? What do we need to do better to, to take away some of those negative impacts? Mm. A, lot of, a lot of my role is working with our internal team members to give them advice as well. You know, and then I, I would just say, looking forward and strategizing, you know, what, what do we need to be developing? What are, what are our customers' needs after, mm -hmm. after talking to customers and understanding what their unmet needs are? What technology do we need to be developing to meet those needs? And then that information gets fed to our, our technology development team. And then finally, I'd say collaboration is just huge, not just with our customers, not just with our internal teams, but NGOs and various nonprofits that are really diving deep into this world of sustainability, in particular circularity. And, and when you think of circularity of plastics, that's typically recycling or reusable packaging. You know, a lot of that, frankly, is even with our competitors in a pre-competitive nature. Um, mm -hmm. saying, hey, you know, this plastic waste issue is very real. It's an existential threat to our industry. 
how do we work together to address the waste issue so that we can continue to reap all these benefits of plastic? And we can talk about that in a bit. And how did plastic ingenuity actually get started? It started a few decades ago, right? Yep. We're actually coming up on our 50th year this coming year. So PI turns 50, which that's amazing. And it actually got started in a garage. So it's that typical story you love about hearing, but like, oh, starting from, you know, from dirt, you know, from from shackles and shambles all the way up to, you know, now we have five locations and and over 200 million in revenue. And it started with um, a man named Joe Keen, and he, an incredible engineer, incredible person back in 1972 and started a small little thermoforming machine, had it in his garage and was just making plastic parts, trying to sell them, get them out, and actually landed a large cheese customer, believe it or not, because we're in Wisconsin, <laughs> go oh, figure, <laughs> and was making essentially like a, you know, a, a tray or a package for cheese and essentially ended up delivering sooner than what who met cheese customer was was actually you know already using the, the quality was better and he and joe keen and his small little team <laughs> was able to deliver this kind of a hail mary so to speak and this cheese customer was like why aren't we working with this guy and so that's how it started he borrowed some money joe keen did to expand his operations in that garage and added in his brother tom keen who is now recently retiring from plastic ingenuity after an incredible career and you know those two really from an operational standpoint from Tom's end and from Joe just being kind of that high level visionary of where he wanted this company to go took the company from a garage to building their first facility in plastic ingenuity that's now located in Cross Plains Wisconsin the headquarters and since then it's just the rest is history i mean you know ebbing and flowing with the entire kind of the economy as the highs and the lows different programs and different different games and board games that essentially started really kind of taking hold of these American households where you need plastic trays. And so Plastic Ingenuity, Joe and Tom really found the niche that PI could really innovate with high quality and really good delivery and treated their customers extremely well, as well as their employees. And excellence is hard to keep quiet. And so the company has continued to grow, has survived the ups and downs of the 70s, the 80s, and every, the ups and downs of everyday life, right. <laughs> you know, and Starbucks coming on board, um, Kimberly Clark um, down in Arkansas. So that's where one of our facilities got built because we were making, essentially making the Huggies containers for for wipes and diapers. And so literally just every single niche of the market, whether it was retail or food, primarily PI played in. And so that's how it started back in 1972. And it's begun, it's continued to grow. We have a location in North Carolina, Oxford, North Carolina, now in Arkansas, like I just mentioned, there's two locations in Wisconsin. And we just recently finished opening up another facility in Tuella, Utah, just west of Salt Lake City. And there are also two, I guess, satellite campuses down in Mexico called PI de Mexico um, that focuses a little bit on the kind of the Mexico side of the business in Latin America, but, you know, also does serve some, some customers in North America as well. So the company's grown tremendously in, in 50 years. That is a lot of growth. And you mm-hmm. kind of alluded to this. I just was wanted to clarify that the three main industries that you serve are food, consumer mm-hmm. products, and medical. Yes. So the medical side of the business started back in about 2005, 2006. And so that's actually the, I call the budding growth of PI in the sense that we are a, a huge force now in the medical industry when it comes to packaging, diagnostics, and pharma, you know, medical device, pharmaceuticals, and diagnostics packaging. 
whether it's work in process trays that help get one product made within an organization, or if it's that final product that actually sits on the shelf. Zach is very heavily involved from, from a sustainability aspect in the medical and the healthcare side of our business as well, which is something we can get, get to later. And that's also my primary focus is helping grow and maintain that market too within PI. Yeah, I was actually curious, you know, you were talking about plastic ingenuity surviving all these various hard times. What they've also had to survive is kind of a fight against plastic. And I was curious, how has plastic ingenuity changed their production practices over the years to meet the new sustainability goals? Yeah, it's a great question. Like I mentioned before, it is an existential threat to our industry. We have had to adapt. I think, unfortunately, one of the things that I'd like to emphasize is that there there are a lot of benefits, plastic packaging, that just get drowned out. The plastic waste issue is very real. We have have to do a better job with how we manage end-of-life outcomes. But there are lots of benefits. It's very lightweight, less carbon emittive than metallic or glass alternatives. And that lightweight just carries through all the way through the life the life cycle of, of a product. You're shipping less weight after you fill it. It's durable. It, it takes less energy to produce. It has a big impact on food waste and shelf life extension. We need to do a better job of end of life. So that's where a lot of our focus is, is how do we improve the end of life of the products that we make? How do we keep them out of a landfill? How do we keep put them back into a circular economy? And then how do we promote that circular economy so that that is sustainable in the long term? And there's certainly a large economic aspect to that that I think a lot of times gets missed in the conversation as well. It has to make sense from an economic standpoint or else it is not sustainable. What we're doing is we're focusing on adding and improving whatever we can from a circularity standpoint. For us, that means using as much recycled content as possible. There's post-consumer recycled content, which is the stuff that gets into a recycled bin, gets converted back into reusable plastic. And then there's post-industrial recycled content that is scrapped from a manufacturing process that hasn't seen a consumer yet, but still needs a home. We don't want that to go mm-hmm. to, to a landfill. So it's, it's equally important to, to build markets for those and, and use them both. So, you know, we've made significant investments over the years to be able to maximize the amount of of recycled content that we use in our product. Mm -hmm. We've also made efforts over the years to reduce the amount of plastics that we use. And that could be partnering with a customer on a certain project, or it could be maybe a broader initiative of saying, hey, you know, what if we take 10% of of the weight out of this? What type of impact does that make? And Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to what we do, it all starts with that reduction aspect. How do we minimize what we're putting into the world? And then from there, we look at what we can do from a circularity standpoint. If this isn't recycled today, how do we make it more recycled? Um, Mm -hmm. How can we add recycled content back into it so we can continue to create a market for recycled content and have this like sustainable circular solution moving forward. So that's where we're focused. And and sometimes that means we have a customer that has a specific goal and we're trying to create a solution or offer up a solution that satisfies that particular goal. Oftentimes, and this this is not a criticism on on our customers, they they don't know. They're looking for guidance. They're hearing a lot of different things out there. Should I be working on this? Should I be working on that? And they're coming to us and saying, hey, what should I be doing? That's the case we always try to, you know, rely on. What would a life cycle assessment say is the most impactful thing this company can do? What is their customer? What is their goal? Oftentimes that's the large retailers of the world. So what can they do to go to their customer and say, we, we made this change. Here's an impact that it's having. You know, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for consumers and everyday people? 
you talked about how some of these sustainability goals are driven by the clients and some of them are driven by you guys. Are there any sustainability regulations that the government dictates? Absolutely. And and that is specific to the U.S. here. That is becoming more and more of a a topic of interest. It's already happening. You can look at the U.K., you can look at even Canada, other places in Europe where plastic taxes are being assessed. If you're using a certain plastic or any plastic, you're seeing bans. We've already seen bans on things like bags and straws and and now other single-use plastics. Those are always kind of in the back of your mind. We're definitely seeing it more in the States. You know, unfortunately about how we do things here is it's very decentralized. So you have states kind of leading the way from in that regard with policy, like California, Maine, Oregon, you name it. And then you have a brand owner will have completely different sets of regulations from, you know, a different state like Wisconsin or, or North Carolina. That's a challenge. You have these states that you know, have very strict regulation either in place today or proposed and on the way, such as extended producer responsibility laws. Keeping mm-hmm. up to date with that, understanding what's coming and then kind of designing your products, your solutions, your packaging around forward thinking what's coming five, 10 years from now. That's the challenge. And I certainly respect those states that are leading the way, but it would be nice if we had more of a federal, I guess, consolidation or understanding of policy. And it's just unfortunately not Mm -hmm. the way it is here. Yeah. I mean, I guess they need to hire on some people like you in the federal government, (laughs) (laughs) some sustainability champions. You know, I could say it is definitely driving action, though. And, and I think it's things like extended producer responsibility laws, which basically shift the responsibility for waste from the local government or from the local constituents to the producer. So that would be either the brand owner or the packaging producer. As long as that's intelligently crafted, as long as those funds go back to what they're intended to go to and, and not just in some state's coffers, like we, we all support that. We want to help. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is when it gets down to the details, fortunately, they're, they're not often intelligently crafted and there's loopholes mm-hmm. and there's just inconsistencies from material to material. And, you know, we want to help. We just want to make sure that it's being the most impactful policy as possible. I wanted to ask some more questions about plastic innovation and what next-gen plastic sure. innovation is going to look like. But before we do that, let's just get a quick intro to plastic mm-hmm. overall. And let's just kind of back up a sure. little bit and talk about what is plastic? Yeah. So plastic is oil and the shortest, sweetest answer that you can say. But what that means is that oil has been pulled out of the ground, as we know, called, you know, we, we extract the oil, that oil, parts of it, it's boiled off, that goes to a refinery, and that boiled off part of the oil called MERS, monomers, those get cracked and fracked and essentially add chemicals to it and they make polymers. And polymers are multiple MERS, multiple monomers. And then those polymers essentially get turned into either gasoline or it gets turned into resin. And resin is what plastic ingenuity buys. We buy that resin, we put it in a big silo, and when we're ready to use it, we dry it if we need to, to remove water, because water and oil together is not good. And we put it into something called an extruder. An extruder essentially takes the plastic, heats it up, think of like a big Play-Doh toy, right? Where you squeeze the Play-Doh through whatever filter you've got and you get like spaghetti or whatever. So we do that with plastic and we shove it through this dye or an extrusion dye. And that becomes a sheet of plastic that we either roll into big rolls, of the time or we sheet it into large sheets and that's what plastic comes from and that's what we do with it. Hmm, thank you. That was a really great explain <laughs> like a five answer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
And I know there are some other next-gen plastics coming out made from things like cellulose or fungus, such as mycelium and whatnot. So what do you think will be the biggest hurdles for these new plastics to overcome when entering the industrial scale, like kind of what you guys are working on? Yeah, go ahead and take that one, Zach, because you're all about those challenges. There's a lot of challenges, and Zach, yeah, yeah. we'll keep him on track because he could talk about it for a while. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the beautiful things about plastic that probably most people don't know is that you can you can make it out of pretty much anything. So I think when you start looking at um, alternate feedstocks to fossil fuels, which I think is super important, you know, as a society, we do need to move away from reliance on fossil fuels. I totally buy into that. We just, we need to make sure that what we're moving to is a better solution. We, we need to make sure that whatever materials we're using for a feedstock, A, they, they don't interfere with the food supply chain. B, we need to make sure that they're farmed and harvested in a sustainable manner so that we're not having a negative impact there on, on the land. We need to make sure that the production process is less carbon emitted than the production process from fossil fuels. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it is important to look at these alternate sources because we're, we're going to need to head that direction. I think the solution that has the lowest carbon emitted structure and has the most circular type structure will be the ones with the highest potential. So what, what, what right. that is, I don't know. We'll see how it shakes out. I do know that there's a lot of innovation in this space. There's a lot of really smart people working on it. And I think Mm -hmm. the efforts that are being put in today are going to pay off, probably not immediately, but 10, 20 years down the road. Well, yeah. And it's these these next-gen materials that are coming that make plastic are, you know, bioplastics, essentially, whether it's cellulose, fungus. It's like, what do we do with that plastic once it's made in the sense of, is it actually, is it satisfying the need of the customer? Is it actually satisfying the need or the application that we need? It's one of those things where it's like, okay, I can really be great at telling a story, but if my story doesn't actually do anything, what am I telling it for, right? I can be really great at making plastic out of new stuff and making it ultimately more green, quote unquote. But if it's not actually being able to be sterilized in a medical application, I can't use it Mm. in a medical application. If it's not actually going to hold the food and make sure that it doesn't spoil as it goes from North Carolina over to California, going across the Rockies and going through four different climates, no, it's not actually going to work. So that's the challenges when it comes to actually making these things on an industrial scale, because a lot of the back-end logic and the back-end algorithm, so to speak, on how we actually make it useful and how it actually pertains to the application, we're just not there yet. The science isn't there yet. And so that's the biggest challenge right now that you find a lot of these people kind of coming up against. It's a great point, Brandon. I, oil and, and natural gas is so plentiful and easy to, look relatively easy to extract from the earth from a process standpoint. It's, it's relatively very inexpensive to these other sources. So, mm-hmm. you know, either these new sources have to find some scale or we have to be in an environment of elevated fossil fuel prices for this to make sense from an economic standpoint, or we need right. to have consumers that are willing to pay more for everyday products. We're living in a current period of pretty high inflation. So yeah, it's tough. There's, there's going to be a bumpy road no matter what these next-gen solutions are. There's no doubt about that. And I think it's going to take collaboration. It probably will take some government intervention. Hopefully it's intelligently done. It's going to be a bumpy road, but I do believe we're, we're going to get there. 
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing those very realistic engineering constraints because scientists and people in the R&D department probably would love to think about all these different things we could make plastic out of, but you guys know exactly what's going to hold up. And at the end of the day, the medical companies that you work with, like Pfizer, that they need a product mm -hmm. that is high quality and consistent. So thank, thanks for sharing those very realistic constraints. So besides maybe moving to bioplastics, which is one method that we can think of next gen materials and plastic innovation, I'm sure there's other ways that innovation can occur besides the raw material. Can you talk about what are some right. different considerations, like maybe some upstream design considerations? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to take that one. Um, you know, I, I think first I'd like to start with the false narrative that people just need to recycle more. Like it's, it's all on the it's all on the consumers. They just need to be better about recycling and you know get with the program and, and recycle everything. That's just not the case for a variety of reasons. One, only 50% of U.S. households have access to curbside recycling programs. Obviously, that's a problem. And if you live in an apartment or, you know, these multifamily homes, recycling access is very hard to find. So there's an access issue. And then there's just, I would say, bottlenecks or gaps in, in the process itself. So even if someone has access and they, they put their packaging or whatever it is into the recycle bin, there's many ways along the recycling chain where that material can just get either not processed into another good or be sent to landfill. So to put it on the consumer and say, you just need to do a better job of recycling, yeah, there's some aspect to that, but I think it's a broader issue. And, and a lot of it too is education. The vast amount of consumers want to recycle. They don't know what to recycle often, or they don't know how to recycle. So do I need to rinse this package before I put it in? Or do I need to disassemble something? All those things, those upstream design considerations, we can do a better job as a packaging creator. And our customers, the brand owners can certainly do a better job. And, and we are, we're, we're focusing on those areas. You know, one thing we call it designing for recovery. So having the end of life recovery in mind upfront when we design a new package is absolutely critical. Our industry has done an excellent job uh, led by the Association of Plastics Recyclers of creating a design guide that says, okay, these features are preferable for recyclers, or these features are detrimental to recyclers. So as a packaging creator, we refer to that guide every day and say, we need to stick with these features that are preferable and avoid these other features that are detrimental whenever possible. Mm -hmm. Just to give you an example, if you have a package that may be plastic, but they're gluing a, a paper component or a label to it, making sure that those adhesives are conducive and preferred by the recyclers, because there's a choice. There's adhesives that are suitable for recycling, and then there are adhesives that are not. Things like that, minimizing the amount of components in a package, avoiding colors. So when you think about the market for recycled material, for a majority of the, the market is driven by clear or natural material. So by adding colors, especially opaque colors, it can have an impact on the market. And also certain colors like black can really throw off automated sorting equipment. So when we recycle, we put our articles in a bin, they go to this facility called a MRF, a materials recovery facility. And what the MRF does is they sort all of the different types of materials. So they'll sort out plastics, glass, paper, and then they'll further sort down the plastics into the various types like PET or high density polyethylene. What the colorants do is they interfere with that sorting process, particularly the, the near infrared sorting equipment that looks at, the, there's literally a camera that can look at the plastic and tell immediately what type of plastic it is and then kicks it off into that stream. 
Bottom line, there's lots we can do as a packaging creator, as a packaging designer to maximize the opportunity that if a, our article gets into a bin, it's going to get to a recycler. That said, we still need to work and improve access for consumers and improve education. I would say those are the two largest bottlenecks for recycling here in the U.S. It's not consumer behavior. That's a false narrative. It's breaking down those barriers in access and education. Yep. Very interesting. I'm really glad that you kind of took some of our consumer guilt off of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> listening to these examples you gave, that's not something as a consumer that I can change. I can't force my classic company to say, hey, you need to stop using right. the color black. <laughs> you you need to use, Yeah. You, you need to stop adding adhesive right. glue onto your material. Not okay, my fault. Nope. Not always. We also do our part. We, we yeah. have a role to play. But yeah, there's certainly things that are above the consumer's responsibility. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what about a little further downstream of yeah. the design considerations? Yes. You know, you've got somebody like Plastic Ingenuity, who has a very deep <laughs> um, set of engineers, people that have been there for 25, 30 years on average. These guys are excellent at knowing how to design for recyclability. And they're learning more every day, just as we are as a journey. However, they aren't the ones that actually make it, right? They're not the ones that are actually using energy and pulling water from our natural resources to cool the extruders, to cool the molds, to cool all these processes that are very heat intensive. And so what you find out is that the middle stream kind of ball game of after something's been designed is that's another whole set of sustainability, call it initiatives that people can get involved in. And Zach's job, and he does a great job, is finding what organizations of plastic ingenuity need to be a part of that are all of these manufacturers that stage right there, whether somebody like PI that actually does design and manufacture, some people don't design, they just do that manufacturing side in the middle. And that right there, that's where a huge chunk of energy and water can be used or not used. And so that's another side of this equation where it isn't just the energy in the form of a plastic package that we throw away that doesn't get into the recycle stream and therefore it's not a circular situation. We're finding that you've got people who want to use molded fibers and you have people that want to use all of these different fancy kind of schmancy versions of a package that actually take more energy and actually take more water to make. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what side of the coin are we going for here, right? Am I going to pull natural resources out of the earth in a version of electricity and water? And does that offset the package that I'm making? Usually no. And so molded fibers is one of the biggest things that I think from as a plastic advocate that we come up against. And we have a molded fiber machine at <laughs> uh, Thermoformer at PI. We don't like to use it. <laughs> I'll tell you what, from the top down, from our leadership, Dan Keen, all the way down to the engineers, we're just not super interested in having people go into molded fiber because we're the ones paying the electric and the water bills and we know how much that takes. We know how much energy and time it takes to make a molded fiber package, which by the way, will not hold up in a steam, hot, or wet environment. <laughs> it's a molded fiber. Fiber is paper. Paper is not usually good with water. <laughs> Don't know what your experience is. So there's, there's a lot that really has to be said for that kind of middle stream manufacturing step that doesn't always get factored into the equation of a sustainability analysis. You've got to ask yourself, are we actually creating more waste by pooling it from the earth in the form of heat and energy and water just to make something that looks like it's sustainable? when actually you've already lost before you even finished making the package. Do you have any examples of molded fibers that we typically use in day-to-day? -day? I'm just trying to picture it better. Mm -hmm. So there's different versions of molded fibers. 
what a fiber is, it comes from plants, right? So you've got some kind of, especially the, the fibers that we work with, the paper and the pulp fibers that come from, think of a international paper or a Georgia Pacific or somebody who takes trees, barks, literally like rolls around in a big drum, pulls off the fibers and the barks from those, melts those down, adds chemicals to it. And then you actually are essentially are utilizing this plant-based structure within that. And you're taking that and then you're pounding and putting them all together using a lot of pressure and energy to essentially make those all stick together so much so that they become um, they become a substrate. That's typically the standard version of what a molded fiber is. It's taking fiber and molding it into a substrate or some kind of material or sheet that can be then thermoformed or made into a package. That's kind of what you mainly see, but the worst side of it is any of people adding plastic to the molded fiber to make it more hydrophobic, to make it more temperature resistant, all these things. So then you literally are, you're completely tanking all your sustainability efforts by like making a paper product coated in plastic. <laughs> it's like, so why don't we just use plastic? <laughs> it's like, why would you take paper and put plastic on it? Like literally, if you look at a lot of them on our West Coast, you find a lot of companies and a lot of and people who are saying, this is a really, really great innovative product because it's molded fiber. And then we put like a thin, 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 thin layer of plastic on it so that you can heat it up in the microwave. And you're like, okay, so you just completely, you failed. <laughs> you have failed <laughs> yourself. You have failed the customer. You have failed the environment by taking two sustainable ideas on their own, combining them together, and then it's not sustainable. So it becomes this chicken or the egg. Got to find out, is it worth me trying to find and reinvent the wheel? Or do I need to find a way to make the wheel more efficient? So it's, it's just a different version of sustainability and you've got to be educated and you've got to zoom out to really make sure you find the pros and cons and weigh them accurately. Yeah. It sounds like, I don't know if they call that greenwashing, but people mm. just want to do what sounds sustainable without any regard for whether or not it's actually sustainable. <laughs> And, and you, have to, you have to define what sustainable is for you. I mean, I would say if Zach had a job description, that's the first one is not, are you not a sustainability champion? It's can you help everyone internally and externally accurately define what sustainability is for them? Because it's know, different for everybody. A little, it is. And a little funny story that relates to this from my, my holiday experience. My mom <laughs> came up to me and said, oh, you're going to be mad at me, Zach. And I said, why? She's like, I have these foam plastic plates. Those aren't sustainable, are they? I said, actually, contrary to popular opinion, foam, like the polystyrene foam packaging that's been banned in so many different places is very sustainable because it's so lightweight. It's more lightweight than all of its alternatives. If you look at life cycle analysis, for example, of meat trays, that's a common substrate for a meat tray is these foam polystyrene. It blows away alternatives, even other plastic types like solid PET. And that's just because it is so lightweight. The foam removes so much material from the tray, but it is still very rigid and has all the performance criteria that's needed for the application. But unfortunately, the narrative kind of got out of hand and, and it's been banned. It's not recyclable by traditional mechanical recycling methods, but even with a, a low, low, low recycling rate, it is a more sustainable solution because it is just that much more efficient in how it utilizes materials and how it protects and transport the end product through its life cycle. That's a great example. 
Yeah, that is. The life cycle analysis has so many different parts between like the actual production, the raw material sourcing, the transportation, and sounds like different materials have huge advantages in either one and, you know, various aspects of this life cycle analysis. Well, Mm -hmm. so while we're on the topic of life cycle analysis, Mm -hmm. I I wanted to then ask about some of the more downstream considerations in next-gen plastic innovation, such as the recycling, which I, I know, Zach, you mentioned that shouldn't be the main focus of plastic sustainability, but it is part of it. So did you want to talk a little bit about some of the downstream considerations in plastic innovation? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. So recycling is, is certainly a very important part of plastic sustainability and, and circularity in particular. Mechanical recycling. So if, if you replace a virgin polymer with a mechanical recycling or mechanical recycled content, it can take away 90% of its carbon footprint. So it has a significant impact. The challenge is not all polymers are, are recycled at scale. So if you look at today at the current landscape, PET and high density polyethylene are recycled at scale. You know, recycling rates for PET bottles are, are around 30%. The same could be said for high density polyethylene bottles. So there's some examples there of mechanical recycling success stories. However, that's far from the end of the story in terms of other polymers like polypropylene. Those are not currently recycled at those same levels. We're working to improve that with mechanical recycling, but that's where advanced recycling methods come into play. So I don't know if you're familiar with advanced recycling, Lauren, but basically it's it's a blanket term for really a series of categories related to novel recycling techniques. Some of those techniques like depolymerization actually take the plastic waste, say from carpeting as an example, or other materials and break it down into the, the polymer building blocks, those MERS that Brandon mentioned earlier. And then from there, those MERS can be built back up into polymers and you basically, you have virgin quality recycled content at the end of the day. So pretty powerful. There are other, some other advanced recycling techniques. One's called purification, which basically uses solvent to essentially purify, as the name would imply, all, all of the colorants and other additives that get added to, to the, the polymers to make it suitable for whatever application. So that doesn't break the polymer down to its MER level, but it, it basically strips away everything that would be considered non-virgin. So again, you end up with this virgin quality material. These are all very exciting. We're starting to see them reach scale in the market. And there's been some heavy investments, both from private equity and from the major resin suppliers. And those are always things that we keep an eye on, like how much money is flowing into these new technologies, who's funding it. So when you see private equity, when you see the major resin suppliers funding these new startups and these new ideas, it definitely provides for some optimism that, yeah, these are going to be operational at a certain point. Something we're following, and there's many different ways that polymers can be broken down into their basic forms. Yeah, I've heard it called molecular recycling, not molecular, but microbial recycling or enzymatic recycling. Oh, I right. Say that. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Basically, where you have enzymes that break down plastics. Yeah, it's exciting to see where this world is going to go. There are so many plastics today that unfortunately end up in landfills that we want to be able to recapture. We want to be able to reuse and mm-hmm. new products. That's the goal. We, we're working towards that. We, we don't want any, anything that we produce to go to a landfill or worse yet, leak into the environment. I always get most excited about the biological or the microbial recycling, mm-hmm. the engineering of the bacteria or 
whatever to have enzymes that can break down these specific polymers and potentially be able to handle mixtures as well. Thank you. This was really, really informative. Well, as we start to wrap up, I was curious to hear from you guys. um, What do you think are some of the biggest white spaces that are in plastic innovation currently? Yeah, I think we mentioned one already, Zach, and you can kind of maybe piggyback off of this, but it's scaling, scaling innovative technology. I mean, I think we'll look back in 10 years or 15, 20 years on this early teens, like 2010 through 2030 range, where you're finding a lot of companies, meaning your brand owners, your high level people with money, your corporate entities that are cascading down these regulations and these different sustainability goals that are asking people to get creative and design changes and finding alternative sources for your monomers to make plastic, just like Zach was mentioning. And then obviously, you know, finding out how do we scale this up, right? So I think we'll find that these right in the middle of this, right? It's 2022 and we're still trying to figure out how to scale mechanical recycling, let alone get into the advanced recycling that's yeah. in its budding stages of where, where Eastman has just invested $250 million into a molecular recycling initiative. Shell is doing the same thing. So you've got a lot of these really good names of companies that are, they're getting it. They, they get that we have to do something now and it's scaling. How do we scale this right now? How do we determine what's actually going to work? And then how do we get everybody on board? So that's where we are right now. And I, and I don't even think that we're, we've scratched the surface yet of really tackling the magnitude of the issue that we have. We know we have that magnitude of an issue that I would say that box is checked. I think we're there. People know that climate change is real. People know that our planet's warming like nuts. We know we're we're in deep shit. <laughs> we have to figure out yeah. how to turn the tide here. And right now we're in that, that white space right now of scaling it, figuring out how do we make it bigger. 100%. And, and yeah, to wrap up on a, an optimistic note, like Brandon said about climate change, if you care about climate change, and everyone should, obviously, then plastic's a great solution. It's truly the lowest carbon emitative type material for packaging. Obviously, we need to reduce. That's always a good practice, no matter what material in. We need to reuse whenever possible. Plastic is an incredible option for reducing our carbon footprint. We need to do a better job with the waste. We absolutely do. We need to make sure that we're reusing polymers after they've met their own function. What gets me excited, I've never seen so many forces converge to focus Mm -hmm. on on this Mm -hmm. type of issue. I mean, anywhere from brand owners, OEMs, packaging producers, resin suppliers, the government, NGOs, these efforts are very real. They're very genuine. You've got a lot of smart people that are, are put in a position and whose careers and livelihoods depend on success. I've not seen that before. I've heard sustainability talked about now for 20 years, but I've never seen this level of momentum. And I think we're going to start to see that. We're going to start to see that in in recycling rates over the next 10 years. I think we're going to start to see that in new materials being developed. I think we're going to start to see progress here really over the next several years. And up to 2030, I think we're going to look back on 2020 as kind of a a transition point. So that's my optimistic take. I think a lot of the work being done today, the innovation being done in laboratories and in small scale, that's going to pay off. It's going to pay off, you know, down the road, maybe it's 2025, maybe it's 2030, maybe it's 2050, but we have to keep innovating. We have to keep, you know, our eye on the end game and yeah, just keep moving forward. Thank you. That is a very optimistic final statement. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, thank you guys. If any of the listeners have any follow-up questions or want to get in touch with you, or I don't know, maybe want to work with you, how would you suggest people get in contact? (laughs) 
you can email us and message us on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. Always have like more tabs up than I should probably of things I'm searching for and, and looking at. But LinkedIn is great. LinkedIn or email us. Our emails are both on our LinkedIn pages. I also want to remind the listeners to check out Brandon and Zach's Good Information channel on YouTube, all about plastic innovation and engineering. Yes, please do. Well, thanks so much for sharing your engineering and sustainability perspective here on the Next Gen Materials Podcast. And thank you, Lauren. I'm thankful and grateful for you. Bye-bye. This is your host, Lauren Blake, and I'm looking forward to seeing you on the next episode.